Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Uh, last month, there was a research group that came out with a study, uh, some summary results of a, su a study that they had undertaken with some individuals between the ages of 13 and 25. They asked 4,500 of them about their thoughts about religion and spirituality. And the results were noteworthy. 55% of those that were surveyed said that they had, quote, experiences that evoked a sense of wonder, awe, gratitude, deep truth, and or interconnectedness. So there's an interest in spiritual realities and openness to it. And that might sound surprising given the way that we hear things are trending, that atheism is on the rise, that secularism is on an inevitable upswing, but it's just a matter of time before the human race evolves past our need for religion. This is what we hear so often. And yet these 55% are, are not alone. And it actually sounds a lot like the sort of anecdotal stories that I hear from young folks in particular who are starving for spiritual meaning in their lives. Younger folks who are desiring to have spiritual experiences and are just not quite sure what to do with that. Now, just earlier this year, students at Asbury Theological University in Kentucky experienced what might be considered a, a revival or some sort of an awakening. Now, these students ended a chapel service and the chapel service didn't end. Uh, the students kept coming and they stayed for a long time and they prayed and they read the Bible and they sang for hours and they just didn't leave. And as it grew, more people became interested. And so people would travel to Kentucky from around the world to find out what exactly is happening here, uh, that all these people were so interested and desirous of having this experience spiritually with God. There is a pervasive spiritual longing for the presence of God. And that makes sense. <clears throat> Because whether we want to acknowledge it or not, if we try to suppress the truth, we recognize 
that the physical, spiritual, material world is not all that there is. Uh, There is a supernatural realm, and we are created with a desire that cannot be satisfied in the physical realm. We were created to know and love God, to relate to Him, and yet because of our sin, we are disconnected, separated from our source of spiritual life, and we long to reconnect. But in our ignorance, we just don't know how to do that. We don't know what to do with that desire. And unfortunately, when that desire comes apart from the truth of God's Word and the Holy Spirit, it can lead actually to more despair. It can lead to more destruction. Chasing exotic spiritual experiences is not the way to go. It only leads to more darkness. And there are a lot of folks right now who are seeking spiritual experiences who, in their ignorance, are turning to psychedelic drugs or to the darker corners of spirituality and mysticism and these sorts of things. But the Bible reveals to us that our deepest need is not to pursue a mystical spiritual experience. Our deepest need is a renovation, a spiritual renewal, a regeneration, a second birth. And that's what we hear Jesus speaking about in this passage from John chapter 3 this morning. The Holy Spirit is one of the main personalities, characters in the Gospel of John, and we get to hear him being introduced in this section this morning. In verses 1 through 15, chapter 3, Jesus tells us that two things are necessary before one can see or enter the kingdom of God to gain eternal life. These two things, the first is that we need to be born again. And the second thing that must happen is that he must be crucified and ascended. So I suggest that our big idea from this section of John chapter 3 is this. You must be born again and trust the exalted Christ to gain eternal life. You must be born again and trust the exalted Christ to gain eternal life. We'll take this in three sections. First, Nicodemus believed in and yet misunderstood Jesus, coming in from the end of chapter two. Second, interest into God's kingdom requires a second birth. And then third, look to the exalted Christ and live. That's the plan. Before we try to understand, let's ask for God's help. Father, would you help us this morning to be open to what your spirit is doing here among us? Would you help us to be aware of your activity here amongst us, knowing, recognizing that we did not have to invite you, that you are here, and we pray are at work in those who believe and in those who want to believe and don't understand what that means yet. Father, would you bring light and life to us this morning by your word through your spirit. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Nicodemus believed in and yet misunderstood Jesus. Believed in and yet misunderstood Jesus. Now, we're in chapter 3 this morning, but we had Diana read the end of chapter 2 to help us connect with what happened in this passage just before where we're at this morning. 
to rightly understand Nicodemus, we need to see what happened at the end of chapter two. And you recall, if you were here last week, we said that there were two events that happened in John chapter two, two events and then three responses. There were two events and three responses. That first event, of course, is that he turned water into wine. The second event is that he cleansed the temple. He judged the temple. And then there were three responses to what Jesus is actively doing. The first was from his disciples who began to understand who he was. They began to follow him. They began to believe in him. Others, the religious leaders, when he was clearing the temple, did not believe him. They did not believe in him. They did not trust him. And so their response is very different from the disciples, very black and white. But there was a third kind of response to Jesus that we read about in those last verses of chapter 2. There were those who believed in his name and yet misunderstood who Jesus was. And so Jesus did not entrust himself to them. If you've got your copy of God's word in front of you, look up to chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is Jesus, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't entrust himself to those who didn't actually trust him. So it is notoriously difficult for us as humans to read uh, the motivations of one another's heart. It's always a dangerous game, a dangerous thing to do, but it's not hard for Jesus. Uh, Jesus knows what is in man. He knows what is in man. He knows our heart. He knows our motives even better than we know our own heart and our own motives. And he knows that there were those who were coming to him, those who would believe in his name, who would approach him, who would follow him, who didn't truly understand what they were actually getting signed up for. They didn't know what they were doing. They were coming to Jesus because they had seen, they had witnessed his miraculous signs. And so they were coming to him for his wine. They wanted to drink his wine. They wanted to eat his bread. But they didn't understand that that wine was meant to represent his blood spilled for us. And that bread was meant to represent his body, which was broken for us. They didn't, they didn't get it. And this is a little confusing for us because it says that they trusted him. They did believe in his name, but Jesus knew, because he knows what's in the heart of man, Jesus knew that it was a superficial faith. He knew that it was a superficial faith. So how do you distinguish between a superficial faith and genuine faith? No Protestant theologians from the past have helped us out here by speaking about the three acts of saving faith. Three acts of saving faith. And the first is knowledge. Knowledge. You have to have a basic understanding of what the gospel is in order to believe the gospel. That's the first step. And the second step is agreement. You have to agree that what the Bible says about you is true. You agree that you are a sinner. You agree that Jesus is the Christ. But there's a third step, a third act of faith, which is trust. Trusting that God will keep his promise to save you. Not just knowing and agreeing, but actually leaning into the promises of God in Christ. So it appears that what we have in this third kind of response to Jesus 
is those who have seen Jesus' signs, so they, they know, they have a knowledge, they know he's able to do miracles. Second, they agree that he has come from God, Nicodemus says. So they agree, but they're missing that third step, that they don't trust in him. And so Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. So that's what distinguishes a superficial faith from a saving faith. Saving faith leans into exclusively into Christ alone for salvation from the desperate condition of sin that we find ourselves in. And so now, right after this explanation of this superficial faith of those who are coming to Jesus, believing in him, we see it being played out in real time by this guy who's named Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verses just 1 and 2 for now. Chapter 3, 1 and 2 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so when we see at the end of chapter 2, it's, it's, it's lining up with the beginning of chapter 3. And we can see now what John, the evangelist, the apostle, the the author of John's gospel is doing for us. He's illustrating the principle he just laid down. It is significant what John is doing here. Nicodemus is being presented as someone who knows who Jesus is and who agrees with who he is, but doesn't understand how to trust him for eternal life. You can see that he sees the signs and believes and yet doesn't know what to do. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisee was a very important uh, party or segment within Judaism. The Pharisees were very conservative. They were very strict. They were zealous for holiness, uh, very serious about their religion, took the study of the law very seriously, and they wanted to maintain their own moral purity by carefully obeying God's law. They had zeal. They genuinely took it very seriously. And not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, but he was a ruler of the Jews, uh, a, a teacher of Israel, Jesus calls him later. And so this guy, Nicodemus, knows his stuff. This is not new to him. He would be well acquainted with the Old Testament. And yet he's apparently witnessed some of Jesus' miraculous signs. He's intrigued and he has questions. And so he is now coming to Jesus to find out more about who this guy is. And it is significant that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. There's theories uh, about what that signifies. Why is it that John includes that detail that Nicodemus comes at night? Some have suggested that Nicodemus comes at night because he's ashamed. Uh, he doesn't want to be found out by anyone who's thinking, oh, he's, he wants to go learn more from Jesus. Like he was ashamed to be seen by others coming to Jesus. And that's a possibility. But Nicodemus doesn't actually seem like that fearful of a guy. Uh, he actually seems quite bold, uh, maybe even a little bit sassy in his responses to Jesus here a little bit. Doesn't really seem like a fearful guy. In fact, he actually comes across as, as bold. John uses symbols a lot in his writings. And it, it, if you don't have that little paper handout that you were given at the beginning of this series, you can scan the QR code there and pull up a PDF version of it on your smartphone as well. On that handout, one of the sections that we have there is just an explanation of some key concepts to understand. 
And one of those key concepts is this. Jesus is the light who is bringing light into a dark world. That Jesus is bringing light into the darkness in his incarnation, in his teaching, in his revelation. In other words, Jesus is bringing the revelation of who God truly is so that we might know who God is. So I I, want to suggest that the darkness here symbolizes a lack of knowledge and a separation from God. That Nicodemus is coming at night because he is lacking understanding and is separated from God. And the reason that I think that is we see John do a similar thing later on in chapter 13. Judas, right when he is about to go leave the Last Supper and go betray Christ, this is what it says, John chapter 13. John John adds in a little detail about when Judas leaves. He says, and it was night. That is significant because of the state of where Judas was in his soul. So Nicodemus, I want to suggest, is in the night because he's separated from God. And he lacks information. He lacks understanding. He doesn't understand. Now, he's educated. Don't get me wrong, obviously. He's he's a teacher of the Jews. And yet he doesn't know. This guy who should have been poised to expect to recognize the Messiah, that Messiah who is promised and proclaimed in the Scripture, here he is, and yet he's still ignorant, despite all of his knowledge. He's in the dark. Why? Why doesn't Nicodemus see? Well, that's what Jesus touches on next. Second, entrance into God's kingdom requires a second birth. Jesus is teaching here about a doctrine that we call regeneration. Regeneration. It's when God brings a person from spiritual death to spiritual life. Uh, The condition that we all come into the world into is uh, a spiritual death. Because of original sin, we are all born by nature, children of wrath, in a state of spiritual death. You can read Ephesians chapter 2 for more on this. That means that we need to be brought to spiritual life in order to reach out in love and in faith to God. That's what regeneration is, regeneration. It's the focus of what Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus here. So let's pay close attention to this. The first thing that we should notice is that regeneration comes by the will of God. Regeneration comes by the will of God. Notice just in verses 3 through 6. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when we started this series in John, we spent a long time in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 on purpose. That prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is very important. Uh, It's the interpretive key to understanding the entirety of the rest of John's gospel. It lays out everything we need to know. And here's what we read in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus uses these phrases interchangeably here, to see the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, to have eternal life, uh, different, different ways to speak of the same reality. He uses those two same concepts to refer to the same thing in this passage, to enter the kingdom, to have eternal life. In order to do that, well, we have to be born again, born again, or born from above. It might also be legitimately translated Jesus is explaining something spiritual that Nicodemus simply does not understand. He's thinking in a merely physical, material way. It's similar to the the religious leaders in the temple when he had cleared it out. He was trying to explain something. They didn't understand it. We'll see this throughout John's gospel. But here, he's trying to explain this to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. He has knowledge of one birth, and he's using that template to apply elsewhere, and it doesn't work. How can I be born again like I was the first time? Can I, can I be born again from the womb of my mother? And I don't, I don't think Nicodemus is being ignorant here, maybe a, bit, a little bit sassy. Jesus responds, though, no, this, this birth is different from that birth, Nicodemus. It is not a birth from the flesh. It is a birth from the Holy Spirit. I take that to be what Jesus means, in part at least, in verse 5. In verse 5, notice there in your text, it says that you must be born of water and the Spirit. Verse 5, born of water and Spirit. And there's a lot of confusion about exactly what that means. Jesus and John both use layers of intended meaning, and so it can be difficult to say exactly for sure. It's possible that water refers to the first birth, that physical birth. So when a mother gives birth, the water breaks and the baby is born. Uh, But there needs to be a second birth from the spirit when you're brought to spiritual life, so water and spirit. But it's more likely that water and spirit here is an allusion to what the prophet Ezekiel mentioned as part of the new covenant promises in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. It's in that section that God is promising that he would come to cleanse his people, that he would make them new, that he would cleanse them not just externally, but that he would cleanse them internally. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice in these verses who is doing the acting. Who is the one who's actually making the actions happen? Notice repeatedly, it is God. It is only God who is able to bring about this new spiritual life, who is able to bring about this internal cleansing that we all need. God himself must give you a new heart, and a new spirit. This is what God himself is saying through the prophet Ezekiel. This is what Jesus is reiterating to Nicodemus. You didn't cause your physical birth. 
and you can't cause your spiritual birth either. It happens to you. You can't climb into heaven to be born from above any more than you can climb into your mother's womb again to be born a second time. That is not how it works. Nicodemus doesn't get this. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And we're seeing it played out real, in real time with this interaction between, between Jesus and Nicodemus. We, left to ourselves, are darkened in our understanding until the point at which the Holy Spirit turns the light on. Until the Holy Spirit turns the light on. We are, we are dark. We are dirty until he cleanses us. That's what the second birth is. The second birth is a supernatural gift of God that comes by his will alone. It does not come by the will of the flesh. It does not come from the will of man. This regeneration comes by the will of God. There was probably a moment of silence for Nicodemus as he hears this and it begins to settle in. This has a lot of implications for his life, for the lives of those he loves. You might be thinking, this has a lot of implications. I think I need to think about that some more. It is a mysterious thing to consider. I just want to grant you that sort of right up front. It is mysterious. It really is mind-blowing. It probably brings up a bunch of questions in your mind, but don't get lost here. Regeneration is mysterious. Regeneration is spiritual, but when it happens, you'll know. Regeneration is mysterious, but evident. B, verses 7 through 8. Regeneration is mysterious, but evident. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 back into our hearing. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In Greek, the word for wind and spirit is the same word. And so Jesus, again here, using this layers of meaning, double meaning here, a little play on words for his illustration. We can't tell where the wind comes from. We can't tell where the wind is going. The wind is just there. It is something physical that we experience. It's mysterious in that sense. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going. But when the wind is there, you know it. Because the wind leaves evidence. This is what he says. You hear the sound. You don't know where the wind is coming from or where it's going, but you hear the sound of the wind. You hear the rustling in the trees. You can't see the cause of the motion, but you can see and hear the effect so it is mysterious, but it's not mystical. When it's there, you know it. And Jesus says this is a good analogy for the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. You can see him, the Holy Spirit, by what he moves. Okay, so if you can see the effects of wind, or the rustling of the trees, what are the effects of the Holy Spirit? Well, at regeneration, the person receives an ability to trust in God's gospel to reach out in faith, to be saved, and they use this ability that God has given to them to turn to Jesus, to turn from sin, to repent, and so they go through this process that we call conversion. 
conversion. It, be, it means someone's beginning to love what is good and hate what is bad. It is a change of nature. So you can't see gravity. Another illustration, you can't see gravity, but when an apple falls from a tree, you can see the effect of that gravity that it had on that apple, and you can recognize, oh, gravity is a thing. And so in a similar way, we can see the effect of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who are born again from above. Regeneration is made evident through conversion. Regeneration is made evident through conversion. So this is what we hear in people's testimonies, right? We hear about people who have, who have turned, they've repented from addiction, or maybe they've become increasingly compassionate towards others. These are the things that we hear about. The, a change in our ethic, a change in our very nature, our character. And I can't help but wonder if this desire for a change is what lies underneath so much of this generation's desire for spiritual experience. Maybe it's actually just a, a desire, a recognition of the need of a fundamental change in ourselves. We know something's broken in us. We don't need somebody else to tell us. We know it, but we can't put our finger on exactly what it is. The therapeutic gospel of our age would tell us that our deepest problem is actually that we simply need to accept ourselves as we are. Just learn to adapt to our inner nature. And that might scratch the itch temporarily, but that message does not satisfy our conscience. We know that we need genuine change. And so we set off to recreate ourselves outwardly through any number of means, through education, through surgeries, through life hacks, and maybe even through moral uh, improvement or ethical reform or changes. But none of that outward stuff is what we really need. Jesus is saying what we actually need is spiritual life. Not the appearance of life, life, eternal life, abundant life, salvation, an undeserved gift received by those who believe in Jesus, an abundant, meaningful, fulfilling existence that begins in this life and then carries on into the next. And that can only come when we're born again. Born again. Hear me carefully here. Moral reformation is not the same as regeneration. Moral reformation is not the same as regeneration. Now certainly, moral reformation, cleaning yourself up, becoming more holy in that sense, does follow from someone who is born again, but we cannot get the cause and the effect confused. You tracking with me? In other words, you don't clean up your life in order to come to Jesus, but because you have been born again and you have come to Christ in faith, well, now there's evidence of that. Your renewal internally begins to show evidence through holiness, an increasing desire to be Christ-like, where the image of your father, Adam, is being replaced by the image of Christ. It's not just a change in how you act. It is a change in your very nature. That changes then how you act. He gives us a new heart, he gives us a new spirit, and he makes us holy from the inside out. And so testimonies that include wonderful things about being saved from addiction, 
uh, growing in compassion for others or like a, a great sense of hope, that's amazing. It's wonderful. But for the born-again Christian, that radical change of life is really simply the rustling of the leaves on the trees. It is a recognition that God has sovereignly and mysteriously changed your inner man, that he has brought about the change that we need. And what happens is then we, we see evil as being more evil. We see it with clarity, with discernment. We recognize it. We see it. I didn't see it before, but I see it now. We begin to hate what we used to love. We begin to approve of that which we did not approve of previously. We find genuine comfort in the purifying blood of Jesus Christ. Do you see how this is not self-righteousness? This is genuine godliness wrought by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. This is the work of the Spirit. Friend, if you're hearing me and you're concerned about the state of your own soul, I hope you don't turn away from the anxiety and the tension that you're feeling right now. If you're like Nicodemus, and you're drawn to Jesus, but you don't really understand why. You don't understand really what, what am I even searching for? I don't know, but it seems like this guy's got the answers. Maybe you're upset that you don't think you have spiritual life. Don't turn away. Don't harden your heart in this moment. Allow your concern about the state of your soul to, to drive you to God. To reach out in prayer. Ask him to give you life by his spirit through faith in Christ. Now, brother and sister, if you've already done this, and you right now in your pew are continuing to be concerned, you desire this new life. You desire this new spiritual reality that God gives to you in Christ by the spirit. And you're really bothered to think that you might not have it. Well, bring those concerns to Christ. Bring those concerns to Christ and, and ask for help that the Holy Spirit would join your spirit so that you might have confidence that you can cry out to God as Father, as Romans 8 tells us. But brother or sister, you should be encouraged actually by that sign. A desire for spiritual life isn't a sign of someone who's spiritually dead. Just remember as we'll find out later in John's gospel, God does not abandon or ignore those whom he brings to spiritual life and adopts into his family. In either instance, whether it's pre-conversion or post for you, the cure for your spiritual longing is met with the same cure. Look to Christ and live. Third, Look to the exalted Christ and live. I'm read verses 9 through 13. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. Now, it is significant that Jesus has explained some of the most fundamental hopes of what comes with the Messianic age that we saw actually played out in chapter 2, of the internal cleansing with the water into wine, 
the cleansing, the purification of worship. These are promises that were going to be coming with the Messianic kingdom. And when the Messiah comes, he's bringing this kingdom with him. But Nicodemus, at this point, still doesn't understand what that means. He's not seeing it. And so Jesus is explaining how regeneration takes place on earth, in the physical realm. This is a change that we see here. Last year, Andy McClurg actually preached on this text on short notice, filling in for me last fall. And he used this same text. He used an analogy of a Suns player named Chris Paul. Uh, Chris Paul is an authority in basketball. And so if, if Chris Paul wants to show up and teach you about basketball, you should listen. I have to change this illustration, though, because Chris Paul is no longer a son. He is a Golden State Warrior, and I no longer listen to him. <laughs> His authority is no use to me. But the illustration still stands. Uh, he has authority, and that's what Jesus is saying. I am speaking to you about something that I know. I'm telling you something I've seen. I'm telling you something I've heard. I have the authority to speak on heavenly realities because I have been there. That's where he came from. And so he has the authority to reveal God the Father in heaven because he, he is God. He's not a mystical guru who's blathering on about eternal divine consciousness or some sort of weird nonsense. He speaks of what he knows. He speaks of what he has seen. And again, we should not be seeking general, mystical, mysterious connections with the divine. We can't meditate our way into heaven. We can't reason our way up into heaven. We need God to reveal himself to us. And that's what he's done. Through nature, yes, through our own conscience, that thing that you know that is wrong with you internally that you can't put your finger on, yes, that is your conscience that's coming from God to clue you into the fact that you need a redeemer. But God has made himself known in history and through his mighty acts and through his word. And Jesus is closing in on one fascinating example of the way that God has revealed himself through his mighty acts. Just the final two verses here, verses 14 through 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is coming from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 and following, which was our call to worship text. God had freed Israel from their bondage in, in Egypt, but they were wandering around in the wilderness, complaining, grumbling against God. And so as a result, God sent, the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, and these serpents were biting people uh, so that many of them actually died from this judgment that came against them because they were, they were judging God. Then the people recognize there's a connection between these fiery serpents and our judging of God. And so they come to Moses and they say, we are sorry. Would you please pray to God and ask him, just let him know we are sorry. We no longer want the fiery serpents here. Would you pray that he would take them away? And so Moses prays and the Lord speaks to Moses. The Lord says, make a fiery serpent and then set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, this fiery serpent on a pole, he shall live. And then it says, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's kind of a quick little quirky, obscure story from Israel's past. But here again, 
Jesus is showing that he is the fulfillment of all, every bit of Israel's history. So here they are dying under God's just judgment in the wilderness of the desert, God's wrath remaining on them. They call it in repentance, and God doesn't take the snakes away, but he provides a way of salvation. He provides a solution to the problem of God's just wrath. If they would look to the provision that God made for salvation, they would live. Just look. Looking to that snake that was lifted up on a pole, which was the very image of the source of their agony, the irony, of course, not being lost on them. But the promise came, if you look, you will live. And it's noteworthy to notice that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here as well. The Son of Man. That's his favorite title for himself. Uh, I think only one other person in Scripture besides Jesus calls Jesus the Son of Man. Stephen, just as he's about to be the first Christian martyr, dies in Acts. And this is what he says. Stephen's, uh, some of his last words. I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man is a reference to Daniel. Jesus loved to use it about himself because it is a way to speak of Jesus' own identity as God. It sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like you're saying he's, he's human. Yes, he's human. But the Son of Man actually is a reference to his divinity. It is a reference to his divinity as a victorious, reigning, everlasting king who would come and conquer and then share everything that he earned with his people. He is the Son of Man who would stand triumphantly in heaven, just as Stephen witnessed. And so when Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, we need to be hearing two things. Jesus is saying two things about what this means to be lifted up. The first is, of course, that he must be lifted up on the cross to bear our sin. Just as the serpent was lifted up on a pole to bear away the venom which came from the snakes in the desert, Jesus must be lifted up on the cross to bear away the sin which came through the serpent in the garden. He would take away the consequence of our sin, though it didn't rightly belong to him. He died our death, but he did not remain dead. He resurrected from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven, that same place from whence he came. And now, this is the second thing, when he's lifted up, he is exalted now to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And so when we sing in Man of Sorrows, lifted up was he to die, it was finished was his cry, it's the first lifting up, now in heaven lifted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And from heaven, where he stands victorious, reigning, lifted up, exalted at the right hand of God the Father, he sends now his spoils of his victory. He sends down the Holy Spirit with all of his gifts to regenerate us, to sanctify us, and to teach us, and to comfort us. This is how God loved the world. But that's verse 16, and we'll get to that next week. So perhaps you know that you need this change. Uh, but you're not clear on why or how that change even comes about. It's not just a trick of your mind. 
there is a genuine, real, moral guilt that you bear. It's called sin. It is a real thing. So the question is, will you receive God's own solution that he provided for the problem that you have? By believing in the Son of Man, lifted up on the cross, by believing in that Son of Man who is now exalted as the high King of heaven, simply look and live. See with the eye of faith, look to Christ and live. There is nothing that you could bring about by your own flesh, by your own will, that could cause you to be born again. Just look. This is the act of faith. That is the spiritual experience that you're looking for. No matter who you are, what your experience is, what your background is, what you've done, this is the cure for all that ails you. So as we begin the season of Advent, let's just think about what Jesus' birth would mean, the, the significance of it, the implications of it. Jesus was born so that you would no longer need to die. He was born to give you second birth. Praise be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.